This is the Snug Podcast. In this episode, Good Outcomes from Evidence Based Medicine. The most important outcome of evidence-based medicine or evidence-based healthcare is not whether or not outcomes are improved. It's whether or not a shared decision was made because the vast majority of medications people don't get a benefit from. We ended up deciding to have discussion thresholds and not treatment thresholds. Shared decision-making brings back an element of joy to the practice. Hello and welcome to another podcast from the Scottish National Users Group. I'm Andrew McElhinney, a GP and member of SNUG. In this episode, we're going to focus on clinical decision support and how to access online resources which provide an evidence base to guide our treatment of many important conditions. We have a great conversation today with a special guest who has written papers, designed a number of videos, decision support calculators, who hosts the excellent Best Science Medicines podcast and is Professor James McCormick, Professor of Pharmaceutical Science at the University of British Columbia. Now, you might have heard one of his videos featured on our January episode on medication, and I do fully recommend going to the James McCormick YouTube channel where you can hear a load of familiar tunes while learning about what evidence-based medicine is really all about. why guidelines are not necessarily a good starting point for decision-making, and why it is usually sensible to start patients on lower doses of medication than we often do. It's a great pleasure to welcome you onto our podcast. Uh, this is the first time we've gone international. So would you be able to just say um, uh, where you are and, and tell us what you do? Yeah, so uh, yeah, thanks. And I'm, I'm impressed that I'm the first international guest. That I'm not sure. So what that means, usually they say an expert is someone who comes from out of town and who has slides. But uh, yeah, no, my name is James McCormack, and I'm a professor with the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Sciences at the University of British Columbia. And I, I, sort of my entire career has been spent trying to get evidence, uh, help uh, healthcare providers get the best available evidence and use it in the decisions uh, or help them make decisions with their patients. So I have to say, you, you at a late stage in my own career as a GP, you've changed my my attitude to prescribing uh, with, through your video on the dose response curve. Oh, cool! I'm glad to hear that. Um, because I'm not sure if I ever fully grasped, uh, you know, this idea of getting most of the therapeutic effect from a drug using half the dose. Yeah, and and it and it and uh, to be honest with you, it was pointed out to to me by a colleague many 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 years ago, and I just sort of taking it over as my own idea. But no, a colleague, a clinical pharmacologist, a, a friend of mine, Bob Rangner, who we did a lot of teaching together, you know, all you have to do is if you, here's the problem, you probably fell asleep in, in the class that talked about the dose response curve. Because <laughs> I certainly know I did. And, and so it's a really interesting concept. And there's a whole bunch of reasons behind it. But I, I don't want to get into too much detail for it. But the, the dose response curve uh, is, you know, how, what, percent of, what percent of an effect or the percent of people do you get a benefit from uh, with a particular dose? And on one of the axes, it's log dose. It's not a proportional change. And, and there are 
numerous, numerous studies, uh, well-designed randomized controlled trials of, of different doses of medication showing that when you, if you have a log scale, when you double the dose, you do not double the effect. You have to do much, much more of that. And uh, so one of the things that we've always suggested is that, uh, especially when, when medications are approved, you have to study a dose that almost everyone responds to, otherwise you can't show it works. And so there's sort of a, it's a two-edged sword. You get uh, the evidence that it has an effect, but you're not getting good evidence of the, the dose that you need. And you could never tell the dose that you need for any person. I mean, uh, I'm sure, I, I, don't, I don't know if you want to let your listeners know your experience with the use of alcohol, but, you know, everybody has a different uh, sort of response to different doses of alcohol. And the way we figured that out is by you, hopefully usually starting with a lower dose and working up until we got into problems and then we back off somewhat. And that is as good an answer that we can have with the dose of most medications. And especially if the condition is not life-threatening, why not start with a very low dose? And the last caveat to that is, given that they're in almost all clinical trials of certainly stuff that we see on a regular basis in, in family practice, there's a in the placebo group, that placebo group has an impressive response, not necessarily the placebo effect, but there's always a 10, 20, 30% uh, of people in the placebo group getting a benefit. So if that's the case, boy, we should probably start with a very low dose because then you get not only that placebo group uh, effect, you also may get the benefit of the drug. And as you know, uh, side effects are also very dose related and you can avoid many of them. So unless it's life-threatening, it makes no sense to start at the doses that are typically recommended. Yeah, and I've got so many patients and things like naproxen, you know, that I'm, I'm now giving half the dose that I used to give to, so. Yeah, and, and, I, think, and I think the most important thing is, is, is to give, uh, you've probably talked to, I'm sure you've talked to enough patients. I, I certainly know when I, naproxen is a great example that you mentioned because I have talked to people and I, you know, you know as well as I do that patients will not tell us the truth on a lot of occasions. And, but when you ask them, well, you know, how often do you take it? Well, my doctor says I'm supposed to take it twice a day, but I figured it out that I, if I take it every three days, it works for me, you know, and, and it's that approach. And, uh, you know, you know, there, there are studies to support the fact that NSAIDs can work in some people at much extended uh, doses and certainly look extended intervals and lower doses. And I, uh, the, the reason I put out that video and the reason that we've been talking a lot about uh, we've talked about this over the years is it is a fundamental way of reducing uh, the side effects associated with medications. You don't have to worry about drug interactions. You, you can probably get the majority of the effect with these much lower doses and it's way less expensive and it's such a simple concept, but the per the patient is the one who has to figure it out. Yeah. Well, Talking about patients, um, the theme that I was trying to, to cover today was how as GPs or family doctors we can use our technology to access the best guidance for everyday problems. If my patient has osteoporosis, vascular disease, high cholesterol, sore throat, heart failure, how should I treat them? So, so where would you start with that? Well, I think you ignore the guidelines. And, I, and, and I'm being, saying that a bit tongue-in-cheek, but for people who have read stuff that I've done or uh, talked about, is that it, it, the evidence is overwhelmingly clear that guidelines are not the source of the best available evidence. Uh, 
They are a representation of people who get together and make a decision about what they think should be done. Very rarely have they done a proper systematic review of the evidence. And not only that, I can almost guarantee you they are in, they, they in no way, shape or form address patients' values and preferences. So the examples that you gave, I think heart failure is a different one because those people are usually symptomatic. But when you look at things like osteoporosis, uh, cardiovascular disease, uh, uh, primary prevention for cardiovascular disease, uh, and so on. But those are asymptomatic conditions and uh, also uh, elevated glucose. Those are asymptomatic patients typically. And uh, what we then need to do is, is try to figure out the, the potential benefit and harm. Because I, I think for every one of those conditions, I think using thresholds of treatment, say blood pressures or cholesterols or bone density or whatever, is fatally flawed because we all have, everybody has a different uh, appreciation of what is an unacceptable risk. And if we don't identify that, uh, because the guidelines certainly don't do that, I I think we're going to put a a bunch of people on medications for which they probably wouldn't want to be on. And we may also not be putting people on medications uh, who might want to be on them. And so I think the only way to do that, and it's something that we've talked about for years on our podcast and for uh, in our in our writings is the most important job that we have as healthcare providers, I think, it, and it's a simple one. I, it's not necessarily simple to do. It's a simple concept is if I did nothing, what's the chance of you having a heart attack or a stroke or a fracture or whatever? And then I have this treatment, whatever it is, it could be medication, it could be nutrition, it could be, it, it doesn't matter what it is. If you were to do this, where does it take my risk, roughly? And there are oodles of tools out there that help you ballpark those numbers. So it's not the, uh, the guidelines don't give you those. They, you, they're, they, they pretty much say, we don't want to consider that. We, we think it's very important that you have a threshold for treatment. So we, uh, so, but there are numerous tools out there that guide you and help you. And I'm sure most of you, most of your listeners have use some of them. They, they use Framingham or we created a CBD calculator that if you want to put links to that, be brilliant about how to at least get the best available evidence. But, but And that's more so to teach you as a healthcare provider the effect because you, you probably have the same experience. I would imagine that not everybody, every patient goes, oh yeah, I'll make the decision. No, no. Quite often they'll come and they say, you're the doctor, you tell me. Yeah. And so unfortunately, the doctor will typically follow guidelines, but I want the healthcare provider to be making that decision on the basis of the best available evidence, because there's, there's oodles of studies as well. And oodles is a, is a scientific term in case you were one, <laughs> but there's uh, uh, oodles of studies showing that uh, healthcare providers would not treat the way guidelines suggest you should treat. Some would, but a good chunk of them wouldn't. And so, why is that? And it's because the guidelines are not, their approach is not based on patients' values and preferences. And so because of that, we've gotten on guideline groups and, you know, we've, we've been the token person on those groups who, you know, are evidence-based and, or in family practice. And we, we literally could not influence them. So we decided to write our own, for instance, we've written a number of guidelines, the use of cannabis and, um, we're doing some pain guidelines right now, but we also did one on, on um, lipids. And we ended up deciding to have 
discussion thresholds and not treatment thresholds. And when you have a discussion threshold, it fundamentally changes your approach than, than if you called it a treatment threshold. And so it's all about, if I did treat you with this, what, what would what's the chance that something would happen? And if I didn't treat you, and, and then we try to let people make up their own mind. And, and, and we don't, you know, you know what it's, it's like when, you, when you're treating people, you don't want to go, oh, you don't want treatment, eh? Huh, that's interesting. Because now you're, that's your bias, right? So I, I, go, I just go, yeah, if you want to take it, great. And if you don't, great. And I don't change the tone of my voice. Just thinking back to the 90s, whenever the 4S trial came out and we first heard about evidence-based yeah. medicine and the number needed to treat for the first time. And there was this excitement that if we could find how many patients in our practice had had an MI and get them to take a statin, that we'd be able to count up the number of bad things we were preventing. And mm -hmm. it, was, it was quite exciting. And you'd look at the patients with heart failure and you look at the patients you know, with AF. And you know, it was a new way of approaching treatment. So there was a lot of excitement about getting patients onto these drugs. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, you know, uh, uh, I think the evidence is pretty clear that, for instance, statins have an effect. You know, it's, 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 it's we can debate the size of that effect and, and so on. Uh, but let's, uh, let's assume that they do have an effect. That by, just because of that, just because of that doesn't mean we would need to treat. Because you know, we, we could prevent all car accidents by not driving cars. Uh, a, a colleague and I, we wrote a, a, a paper just a couple of years ago to say that evidence-based medicine, the, the most important outcome of evidence-based medicine or evidence-based healthcare is not whether or not outcomes are improved. It's whether or not a shared decision made, a shared decision was made because, and we use the argument that let's assume statins do work. Let's say they do reduce cardiovascular risk by, let's say, absolutely 1%. Let's assume that's to be true. The, the you know, guidelines will say, therefore, people should be treated. Well, I'd like to suggest that the, the, the approach should be, I know for a fact, a lot of people don't think a 1% difference makes it, is important enough for them to take a drug every day with the potential for side effects and cost. And so in theory, evidence-based practice, if it, if it involves shared decision-making, could actually worsen outcomes. I'm not saying that should be our, we're not happy with that, but we need to be happy that a shared decision was made. And my experience has been that when we get healthcare providers, especially, you know, people who are mid, uh, midstream in their, in their, practice you know they've been doing this stuff for years and years you know you get to the age 40 or 45 and go my god this is getting a bit boring because it's the same thing over and over and over again following guidelines and I, I literally hundreds of people that we've talked to when we get them to think about evidence and start incorporating that into the value in, and doing shared decision making it brings back an element of joy to to the practice uh, I don't think for everybody I think there are just like the verb, you know, how people respond to different doses. I don't think everyone is comfortable doing this. I, I know for, from personal experience that there are still a lot of healthcare providers who just say, I'm the doctor, do this, and that's what we should be doing. But I don't think that's the majority anymore. 
And I think people are changing in the sense that it's not really very exciting to give somebody a leaflet with lots of numbers on it, explaining the benefit of HRT or some kind of treatment. But if you can show a video and YouTube is great and, you know, for example, your website, you know, your YouTube site um, is great. I mean, who'd who'd prefer to read a BMJ article rather than watch a, you know, a a Homer Simpson video? (laughs) Well, thanks. Yeah. And, 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 you know, education is, 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 tricky it is is tricky about how best to do these things you know how do you even learn about things and uh, there was always a great quote and i'm gonna i'm gonna butcher it but it's if, if if you think there's a difference between education and entertainment you don't know much about either and uh and i think there's some truth to it and so uh, you know i i try to make dissemination of evidence marginally interesting because it can be painfully dull I was just going to say one of my favourite of your videos is the the Hitler one, you know, the Battle of the Surrogates. The the message was other than to make people laugh is to show the the craziness, if you will, around what we do and to say, you know, and it's and it's the craziness around. One week we tell you that this is good for you. Then we tell you it's bad for you. Then we tell you it's good for you. And then we tell you it's bad for you. And a lot of that stuff, if, if, we, if there's an area where, we're, we're, where the evidence is just absolutely berserk, it's around nutrition. And that's a whole other area of, of what we do and don't know, I guess. But no, it, it's really just to, to say um, there, there, medicine, there are black and whites to medicine. There's no doubt. I, you, you, I'm sure from your experience, uh, you cannot do open heart surgery without anesthesia. I, I can't do open heart surgery at all. No, no, but but God forbid, God forbid, you wouldn't want to do it without anesthesia. Uh, you know, so so we know we know that, and we know you know, uh, you know, a person who is you know is septic, they should probably be on antibiotics and that sort of stuff, but. The rest of medicine is really, uh, or, or surgical interventions, you know, you break your leg and, you know, it should be pinned or at least, you know, a cast put on or whatever. We know that those are black and white. We don't need randomized controlled trials for that. But what we do need is, for, for everything else, is, uh, well, you, you know, if you've looked into the evidence, the vast majority of medications people don't get a benefit from. So that's a, we have to wrap our heads around that concept. Now, that doesn't mean some people don't get an important benefit. And it's our job to help explain that and help the patient figure out, uh, you know, if it's them, uh, you know, some of the stuff that we've written in the area of uh, depression. I I think antidepressants have an effect. But the the great thing about antidepressants is that if you give people antidepressants, about 50% of people will feel better, you know, at about six weeks. The problem is if you'd have done nothing, 40% 40% of would have felt better. So just because you have a person telling you, I feel better, doesn't mean it was because of the drug. And that's, that in and of itself is a fascinating thought process for a healthcare provider to say, boy, I'm so glad you, you feel better. And it probably wasn't what I did. I mean, we have to be very, we have to have less, um, uh, we're not as nearly as good as we think we are. In, in the UK, we had um, this nice GP contract in 2004, which 
enshrined sort of an evidence-based approach and incentivized it so that we, you know, all these nice surrogate outcomes, these proxy outcomes of getting your hemoglobin A1 down, your blood pressure down, your blood glucose down. Um, and, you know, they, they paid us to, to hit targets to do this. And, and, you know, what's not to like? But then we realized that we were not listening to the patients at all. They were coming in the door and we were jumping on them to get their blood pressure and ticking boxes and, and, and we weren't actually listening to them. So, so there was a bit of a rebellion against that, I think, in, yeah. in the UK. So did that happen in, in Canada? Yeah, not, not so much. And, and certainly it happened a lot more in the States. And I think, you know, the, the, this is being done in general with the best of intentions. It's the misguided... Uh, thought process of people who are putting these things together. And it's partly our fault. We've told them high blood pressure is bad. High glucose is bad. High cholesterol is bad. So therefore lower must be better. And I think, again, I, this will, if this happens in my lifetime, I will be shocked, but why not have, you, you should be paid to say, uh, when you reach the, the, when you say we did, uh, shared decision-making and the patient decided to, or not take the treatment then you get paid. Yeah. That's your quality, I think. And the problem is it's, it's, it's not measurable. It's, or it's very different. It's not, it's not, it's, it's very, much more difficult to measure. So, so a few years ago in Scotland, um, I don't know if this is uh, a Scottish phenomenon, but the, the, this government coined this phrase realistic medicine and started talking about it a lot as a, yeah. a way of being more patient centered. And um, they, again, a very worthy idea where instead of being told what quality was a practice or a cluster practices could decide what quality practice looked like um, and be much more patient centered in sharing results and information and try and, uh, as you say, involve the patient in the decision. So that does seem to fit a bit with what you were saying. Oh, absolutely. And, and to tell you the truth, in the last two or three years, I've, I've, I've spoken with a, a number of people from Scotland. and I've been really impressed with what you guys are doing. I don't, I'm not saying, I don't think you're getting it hundred percent right, but I don't think anybody can do that. It's very tricky, but boy, yeah, no, that is the right approach. And, and, uh, um, I, you know, I, and again, I don't think it, we don't need to study it. We don't need to study to see if it was a good thing. It is a good thing. I, you know, you don't, if you do shared decision-making properly, I, I, I don't, it's like, it's, it's like saying, you know, a lot of people are against evidence, not against, but a lot of people have problems with evidence-based medicine or evidence-based healthcare. But it's, 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 just, it's, the, it's what they believe evidence-based healthcare is. I, I would struggle to go, does anybody have a problem with, we should use the best available evidence? Because if anyone's against that, my goodness, that's a really tricky thing to be against. And if they're against in general, the concept of shared decision-making, there are caveats, obviously, to that. There are, there are a number of circumstances where shared decision-making is not, uh, is not, should not be held at the, the highest level, uh, but that's more because of the condition, more so, or uh, societal benefit and so on than, than other things. But, you know, it's, yeah, I, would, I, I would love to have debates with people go, nah, you know, shared decision-making, I think it's a bad idea. You know, it is sometimes because, you know, as well as I do, a lot of people go, you'll do the whole, you know, the, you'll show the, 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 the graphs and the, the happy faces and, and then they'll go, what do, can you just tell me what to do? And, but, but, but that is shared decision-making, right? 
And that's an attempt to look at the benefits and the harms and also not to be coercive, because that's yeah. really what we're trying to get away from. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and, and I have zero problem with people going, you, with you making the decision for them, if they have said that's what they want you to do. But I want you to make that decision based on you having an understanding of the best available evidence. I think increasingly, as I go on, the lifestyle sort of medicine where people are encouraged to exercise, eat healthily, get sleep and relax. You know, th these probably achieve a lot of goods for people that don't need any prescriptions, you know, so. Uh... Oh, uh, yeah. No, and I think there's no doubt. But I do want to put a caveat to that is that we need to make sure that when we do that, we don't make people eat food that they don't enjoy and exercise and do exercise that they really don't like at all. Because, because the, 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 especially around nutrition, if, if, if you think, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, what a healthy diet is, I think you're misleading yourself because I don't think any of us can know that because the, the, the research is so difficult to do. So uh, now I'm not saying that, you know, you should just eat nothing, but you know, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example, lard and, you know, you know, cookies. Have you been to Scotland? Uh, that's, that's what our staple diet. <laughs> oh, I know it is. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> that's why the, that remember the trial, the, the West of Scotland trial, the WASCOP trial, the reason that, 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 the, the, the drug company studied uh, statins in the West of Scotland is because the West of Scot Scotland people were at the second highest cardiovascular risk, second only to Finnish men. That's interesting. We wanted a population that, that has a higher risk of cardiovascular disease, and that's why they went to Scotland. All right. So, so I'm just interested, do they have deep fried Mars bars in, in Finland? Uh, uh, apparently, but they didn't. They called it something else. It was they use a different language. It's it's a, it's a little bit, a little bit nuanced. <laughs> but it's that. But it's uh, yeah. It's it. The the here, here's the great thing. Neither you or I are good enough to solve this problem, and so it it really has led to a, uh, me having a career of doing all this. Yeah, it's great. No, I have to. I have to encourage people to to, to listen to your podcasts, look at your videos because they are really educational. They're entertaining, and I just have to ask: with those musical pieces like the Bohemian Polypharmacy, mm -hmm. do you actually sing on those? So, so that's a common question I get, and here, here's my common answer: If you think I could sing Bohemian Rhapsody, you're crazy. It is a fun, it's a very difficult song. What I can tell you is, I think I've made about. Uh, 15 or so of those, the ones that are, I, I sing on two or three of them, the ones that, that a mere mortal might be able to sing on them. And they are by far the least popular. <laughs> but no, I've got, I've got, I had a, a, a colleague of mine, he, his son had a band and, and they were great singers. And some of the, the, the greatest days that I've had is sending off these, the tracks that I've created, having them do the background vocals. That's not the background, but the vocals on them and then sending them back to me and going, oh, you guys nailed it. And, uh, you know, because we, we do parodies and obviously change the wording around. And the, <laughs> the fascinating, I think they're hysterical. They didn't have a clue what they were talking, what they were singing about because they didn't <laughs> understand all, they didn't understand that it was even marginally amusing. But if you, if you know anything about medicine, they are, I think, uh, they are relevant and I think they are, they get you to think and they might make you smile a little bit. Oh, they're great. Uh, are you going to do one for coronavirus? You know, it's, 
Oh boy, that is such a tough one because usually I like to base stuff on evidence. Yeah. And we're a bit a bit away from good evidence yet, I guess. It it really is. It's uh yeah, it's and, and some people have already done, you know, some very clever ones that the you know the one of the the obvious spoofs was was the song My Sharona. I mean it 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 almost it almost writes itself. But yeah, no, it's I, I don't do it for the sake of doing it. I do it because I want to get a, a an evidence-based me- message across. And so I, you know, even though the group I work with here in, 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 in Canada, we, we disseminate evidence-based information and we are really struggling. Uh, we want to put out evidence-based medicine, uh, evidence-based information about COVID and, and we are trying to do that and have done that. It is so difficult. We, uh, one, it, it, it's a, it's something that changes not uh, month to month or year to year. It changes day to day. And so we're doing the best we can, but we do have to realize that what we say about something like COVID today, interestingly, could be fabulously wrong tomorrow. Well, I did enjoy your critique, or maybe I should say hatchet job on the uh, Roth score. Right. And so even, so I'll, 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 I'll pull the curtain back on that one a little bit. When we first looked at it, we went, you know, we kind of need something. So we initially were going to come out and say, you know, I guess you could use it. And then we, we read about other people looking at this saying, but look at, you know, this is, what about this problem, this problem? And then we sort of, uh, we sort of went, yeah, you know, they're right. It, it, there are so many issues with it. I think it fundamentally makes sense if you can take a breath and, and then count up to 30, you likely don't have a respiratory issue. And if you can only count to two, you're in trouble. The issue is we couldn't be, truly evidence-based with it. You know what I mean? Is it's probably true, but probably isn't the way that we want to hang our hat on, on these sorts of things. And interestingly, uh, I, I hope we're actually doing a study of that right now. Ah, okay. That's good. Like of, 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 of can you use a score like the Roth score? And we're not, I don't know if we're going to call it even the Roth score, but can you use uh, a simple metric or a test? Like, can you count to this number? can you actually use it to make an assessment as a, oh, oh, by a teleconference? Because I think the good things, I don't know, I don't know I'd like to hear your opinion maybe about, I think there's going to be some great stuff that comes out of this. I think education is going to fundamentally change. I think business will fundamentally change. And I'm hoping healthcare changes in that you do a lot more by the telephone or by teleconference. It's already happening. Uh, it's remarkable in the last two months how things have just transformed and, and just because they've had to and people have learned how to use all these gadgets and Zoom and, you know, teleconferencing and, and speaking to patients, you know, by video and patients are getting used to it, uh, you know, whereas they wouldn't have taken it up last year. They, they have to now. Yeah. And, 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 and maybe, I mean, I'd like to hear your, your opinion. I mean, how much I would say probably less than 20 or 25 percent of the time. Do you actually need the person in front of you? That's what we're learning uh, because the model bef- up to now has always been patients coming in uh, and seeing us in the consulting room. We're now learning that there's a lot of stuff we can do over the phone, which is a lot more convenient. Um, it, I always used to get asked, well, what can you tell by seeing somebody? But you can tell a lot for some patients and particularly for these breathless people, you know, that you're talking about. You can tell a lot by looking at them. Yeah. I mean, th- those are the if there is a population that is tricky, it's them. 
because you know you do get you could get advanced you could get some useful information from listening to their lungs pulse oximetry and that sort of stuff so that population that's why the roth score or something like that might be might, might be helpful but you know so much of what you see it's it's a discussion and you don't need to measure everything and i'm hoping because we wait we measure way too many things i mean someone comes into probably, probably my, everybody who comes into your office probably including the mailman the person who's delivering you know lunch or whatever you, you measure their blood pressure just because you can and i don't think everybody needs to have it done all the time we do it because it feels good but you know, I, I, I think just because you can measure it doesn't mean you should. Yeah, there has to be a purpose to it. And, and, and the same goes, goes not just for those sort of physical measurements, but also, you know, the problem associated with all, your, all, all the lab tests that we do. I mean, if we do lots of lab tests, we're going to find problems. And, and, you know, we published an article recently in the BMJ on the variability in lab tests. And, you know, I don't, th I don't think most healthcare providers realize the plus minus around a specific lab test it's way larger it's way larger than i thought it was when we went into looking for it and i think it's uh so i i think something the clearly the the the, the economic and and also obviously clearly the health or, or the mortality uh outcomes that have happened with covid are terrible but i'm hoping we will get good out of this and i think i think some of the things that we just talked about will be that. Um, I, I certainly know at our university, uh, we're being told that it, at least coming up that every all of our courses have to be online. Now, that has advantages and disadvantages, and I can tell you it's not as nearly as much fun teaching that way. But it's there are some clear advantages to this, and and so on. I and I'm, I'm glad to hear that you like. Uh, uh, do you do you like it? consulting online yeah i mean does it does it are you i mean obviously it's nice to see the patient but if you've got the uh, just talking i i think you can get a lot accomplished <laughs> it's almost too convenient to, con to connect with people now you know if, if, if people want to speak to you they can just be, appear in your computer screen so i think we've got to watch out for overload um it's interesting i i um i i read this book um before the pandemic called The Machine Stops. I don't know if you're aware of that. It was no, a, I don't know it. a story um, written in 1907 by E.M. Forster. And it was all about the enforced, the, the worship of technology and people living in pods underground, uh, separate from everyone, just communicating by video screens. Um, and th that was not in the context of a pandemic. It was just no. uh, because the way the world had developed. But it talked about the kind of agitation and the anxiety and the sort of overload of messages. It, it's almost like technology has been a great blessing to us at this time. Mm -hmm. But we're now so connected by screens, we, we can almost be communicating 24-7. And I think there's a downside to that as well. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, that's a great point. And I, and I think, uh, I mean, I, mean I, I don't know if you, if you have children, but, uh, but you know, they're... Uh, they 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 don't communicate verbally much yeah and and i i don't know if that's a i, I think there's a loss to that i mean i i don't i don't think we always have to 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 uh communicate verbally but i think that there's an art to it and there's a there's a uh i oh you know what are they je ne sais quoi about it i don't know you know it's there's something there that you are missing without that 
Um, but it certainly is, is much more convenient. I, I don't see any reason why I need to come in to your office to get a refill for a prescription. Exactly. And I think that's going to be the benefit that people will realize it's much more convenient and time saving just to connect for five minutes, maybe without having to travel and all that kind of thing. James, it's been really fascinating talking. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Um, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, it's fun. And thank, thank you for the interest in what we do. And, 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 and I really appreciate uh, what you guys in Scotland are doing. I, I, I am, I, you guys are at the forefront in a lot of those things. And I, I it's really impressive. And uh, I, I'm hoping that this, the momentum of these sorts of things will keep going. And if not, we'll have fun doing it. And uh, <laughs> there, 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 I don't think there's any harm to getting people more engaged in the best available evidence. Well, keep doing the podcasts. They're great. We will. Thank you so much. We just want to help you see the light. What you didn't know there was that James is sitting, talking away with a Zoom background of the bridge of the Starship Enterprise, taking social distancing to a whole new level. I hope you've been challenged to think about when to start treatments, when not to start them, like statins, antihypertensives, or anything really. There are links to the videos we mentioned, the Best Science Medicine podcast, and the Cardiovascular Risk Calculator, which is really worth a look. But you need to try it to understand why. Thanks for staying with us right to the end. The next time, we're going to take a dive into the details of introducing e-consult to your practice. Bye. Just eat